Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Kelly Ziemer from the School of Social Welfare. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's so great to have you here. (laughs) Thank you. Fun to geek out about research always. Nice. That's what we're all about on this show. Yes. So you study positive emotions. Is that correct? Yes. I think specifically positive emotions that really intrigue me, uh, they're a subset of positive emotions, and they are called self-transcendent emotions. And it's this idea that when you, I'll give you an example in a second, but the idea that when you experience a particular emotion, it actually like takes you out of yourself with the ability to connect you to other people. Okay. Yeah, so you transcend yourself, essentially, right, with the purpose of connecting you with others, so, like, creating social connections. So, like, what kind of emotion would that be? Yeah, so um, ones that are talked about frequently are an emotion of, like, gratitude, for example, awe. It's one of my favorite emotions and actually what really started my interest in positive emotions. So Dacher Keltner here in psychology, he studies awe. The research is, I think, maybe 10 years now, 10 to 15 years on awe, so rather in its infancy still. But awe is really this experience of when you are presented with this like mind-blowing stimulus that you can't really even comprehend. And a lot of people, they realize they're in awe when they're like, wow. Like, wow is like this vocal reaction. Right. So a lot of awe research comes out of um, nature. So like the Grand Canyon, for example, or like beauty, music. And so, and it's this idea that you then feel relatively small in this like greater vastness, that there's something kind of bigger than you out there. Right. Okay. Yes. And all could be negative too, right? It could be it could be like a tornado. It could be a person uh, that right. you're like, how did that happen? How so, did they get into power? Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying. in Berkeley, so I know I'm safe to say that here. Yeah. You're safe to say that most places. <laughs> well, I don't know. But um, Yes. Uh, so So there's this like speechlessness about awe that's like really fundamental to it yes is that kind of fundamental to the self-transcendence um or no not specifically more self-transcendence is like you um are really kind of taken out of yourself so you're you're focusing on yourself less um it's kind of like this some i mean oftentimes self-transcendence is spoken about in like a spiritual religious context too but it really is this idea that we're connecting with someone else. So in like in cooperation or caretaking, like compassion, for example, is a self-transcendent emotion. Some emotion researchers would say that these are self-transcendent because you're, go ahead. With awe, you're connecting with someone else because you both have this like, awe-struck reaction with something and you can relate through that? Um, Yeah. Because it seems like you're reacting to some, I mean, aside from maybe when you're in awe of a person in particular, but it seems like you're in awe of some spectacular vision or occurrence. Yes. And you could be like by yourself. Person. Right. Yeah, you could be by yourself in the Grand Canyon. But um, because you kind of recognize that you're this smaller sense of self, that you that there's something greater than than you out there, that it then leads you, and I think perhaps, and maybe I'm... Um, 
even overstating here, but I don't know if they fully understand the mechanisms of why it leads to social connection, but just um, they call it in research literature, they call it pro-social. So the ability to like being at all allows you to be more altruistic, more generous, to want to help out other people because you realize that you're not alone, essentially, that there is a bigger thing out there than you, this like collective value, so okay. to speak. Yeah, yes. that's really interesting. Is that that kind of, you know, thinking about religion, right, where yeah. you have, uh, I think, all religions, but I guess I'm not sure it would have this belief in God, right. which would uh, generally inspire awe in someone yes. who uh, believed in that. Um, and so is that kind of the basis of religion, having this community, like tapping into this um, community building sense of awe? Yeah, yeah. Definitely the origins of awe, like when, when scholars write about awe, they oftentimes reference this like reverence to God. It's kind of mind-blowing concept. Right. Um, and you feel like there's something greater than you out there, so to speak. But then you're coming together as a community. Yeah. But around so, this belief. Right. So there's more emotions than just awe that would that self transcend and allow this community yes. building. Like you were talking about so, compassion. And- yeah. So oftentimes uh, folks also speak about gratitude that way. They speak about self compassion. Now mind you, there's a lot of disagreement amongst the emotional world. So I don't even want to get into like the semantics. What I think is important to share those most specifically to my interest is I think some would say that love is also this self, self-transcendent quality. Right. So my own research interests over the past few years have really um, evolved into this idea of self-love, and which it's been an interesting journey for sure. As I started talking about self-love with folks over the past, I don't know, eight months or so from a research perspective, because... There's such a gradient, a spectrum, so to speak, of how people see self-love. So if I go back to the self-transcendent nature, how I see self-love is self-love really has this ability to take us out of ourselves to then connect to others. So we're focusing on ourselves, like filling up our own love tank, so to speak, with the ability to then show up for others more. And to connect more. Because if I'm feeling really good in myself and I'm taking care of myself, that means I have more bandwidth to show up for other people. As opposed to if my love tank is empty, if my self-love is low, then I'm doing things perhaps with expectations of, of receiving in return. When that's not happening, I'm feeling resentful. And all that is very like negative, low vibration feeling within ourselves. Right. And ultimately, it's not the type of connection that we're searching for, right? To me, uh, self-love, and I'll say that if I can to give you a definition of self-love, that would be great, yeah. one of the folks who I've seen written about it the most, who wrote about it the most, is a psychologist and philosopher, Eric Fromm. And he wrote a book called The Art of Loving, I believe it was like in the 1950s. And he actually speaks about like five different types of love, I believe. It's like it's a hundred page book and it's really easy to read. And he talks about like five different types of love, um, like a love for God, a love from your parents. He talks about like a brotherly love and that's more like a friendship kind of feeling. Right. Uh, but he also talks about this love for self. And it's this idea of caring for, respecting of yourself and your actions and the way that you're going about your life. And it's this stagnant, for me, 
I think it really is a stagnant uh, way of being. So when there are adversities and when we have to be resilient, right? Self-love is so important. But even when things are going great, right? Like self-love is still a constant thing. And it's, I think it's actually tied to other emotions that when we are in a state of self-love, we actually experience calm and joy and we're able to be more aware for these other opportunities to opt in to connection. Right. Yeah. But I think if I can just say one thing, because I think there's a myth I'd really like to bust actually about self-love, okay. which is um, I think oftentimes there's this there's this idea that emerged, I think, in the 80s maybe or the 90s. I'm blanking on my time frame right now. came out of the self-help movement, which is which was to say that like, before before you can love anyone else or anyone can really love you, that you have to love yourself first. Right. So, which for me, I find problematic in a lot of ways. I feel like it doesn't really encapsulate the full story. I think that when we are really loving ourselves, sure, I think perhaps we're choosing better partners or choosing better relationships that are healing and wonderful for us. Right. But I think and I see this in this self-love movement right now that kind of happens in pop culture that puts such an onus or a burden on people to really like uh, there's almost this perfectionism tendency of like I need to get to self-love otherwise I'm not good enough. And yeah, and this idea of like not being good enough, that's truly not self-love anyway, right? Right. It really is a self-accepting piece and so i think the second part of this also this myth i want to bust is that you know we are wired for social connection right there are researchers and Brene brown has talked about this matthew lieberman talks about this and like the actual brain part of our brain literally is like wired to connect and so if i go back to this idea of self-love that when we are opting into relationships and connection with people that it can the reciprocal nature can be so healing within ourselves that we don't have to first achieve this like unachievable self-love before we can get into relationships with other people. Okay. So Did i explain myself okay there? Yeah, okay. you so you're saying that uh, self-love has this requirement that you accept yourself as you are, yeah. right? Which I guess is true of any sort of love, right? Yeah. Whether directed inward or outward. Right. Uh, there's this acceptance to it. Lovely, yeah. And so you're saying that people tend to view self-love as something that they earn from themselves? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, right. right. There's this like earning quality and it. I think that's really well said that it's like, and I so to earn implies I have to do 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 to right. obtain 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 as opposed to like self love just is because I exist because you exist because right. we're here right now right right and that's my like mindfulness uh, piece kind of tapping in there a little bit but right. yeah it just is yeah uh, it's it's been interesting when I talk to so my own research interests about like what am I actually studying for my PhD. Because I'm a social worker, I'm also very much interested in like interventions, like what can we do alongside our clients, alongside our community? What can we do in tandem with them to kind of get them this outcome that they're looking for? So perhaps it's like feeling better about themselves if they're experiencing depression, for example, right? Right. And with self-love, I started thinking about is there a self-love intervention 
that would be really interesting to try out and study in some way from this like scientifically rigorous uh, procedure, right? Scientific research methods. Right. And when I started talking to people about, there's a common one that's spoken about in self-help. And I've also found it prevalent in addiction communities and like uh, rehab, for example, where you uh, look at yourself in the mirror. You make you literally make eye contact with yourself in the mirror and you say something positive about yourself. So um, I prefer that it's not statements related to like your physical uh, appearance because I do think that it could take like a narcissistic Right. trend, but we're really thinking about like a self-affirming statement, like I'm a good friend. Or even I think, and it really, I'm such a fan of this, is really just telling yourself that you love yourself. So saying like, I love you in the mirror while you're making eye contact with yourself. To me, to love, to love somebody else is to say like, I see you. And so self-love, you're really like, okay, I see you, you know, like you're not that bad. Like you're actually pretty great. And I will tell you that when I've talked to so many people about this adolescence, um, I've spoken to clients of mine who are coming to see me wanting to feel better from depression. I've spoken to scholars about this. And so many people, I get two reactions. One is like absolute repulsion <sighs> about absolutely not. I will not look at myself in the mirror. Like this is, uh, why would I ever do that? Right. And two, I think going back to this idea that you were talking about, it's almost like um, confusion about, well, like why would I even think about myself? Why would I love myself as like this other entity right. when I'm so focused on, you know, loving everybody else? That really to love is to love others, right? Like, right. In scholarly research, we talk about the def one of the definitions of love is like being a trusty caregiver to others. I mean, that's a very amended definition, but love is always this other-oriented emotion. And so, self-love, it's like, like why would I, why would I even do that? It's kind of like awe in some senses, and mm. that the awe you sort of see something spectacular that makes you see how small you are uh, or how much more there is. Yeah. And in this self-love, you have to see yourself as just another person instead yeah. of like where love is flowing from, right? Yeah. But self-love kind of like makes you realize you're not like the center of the universe or something mm. that you're that you're just another person that um, yeah. and that that makes you more able, as you said, in the self-transcendence uh, to uh, connect with other people, I guess. Yes. I think um, this is actually why I feel so strongly about self-love is because I think this exact idea that you're talking about is folks who are experiencing depression or addiction, for example, right? So I'm actually, I'm funded, my dissertation is funded through the NIAAA, um, which is alcohol abuse. And I work specifically with the funder here in the Bay Area, the Alcohol Research Group. So oftentimes when we're experiencing addiction uh, or depression, we become so tunnel vision in our own mind about what's wrong with ourselves, how things aren't working for me. And when we're in depression and addiction, often social isolation is happening. It's very difficult to connect to others. And so I'm such a believer that self-love could have the potential. And this is where I'm curious, right? Like, right. so from, um, you know, I'm hearing like my mentors and my advisors, uh, 
thoughts in my head right now about, you know, sometimes in the scientific world, it can almost be a negative to be a believer, right? That I think like self-love is a superpower. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and I really need to employ my like scientific, rigorous, you know, unbiased view, so to speak, on let's get curious about this. Could self-love actually be a superpower as opposed to like approaching as self-love as a superpower. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right, so right. I, sh- I should, let me reel it back for a second to say that. However, yes, I do feel like coming back to this point of awe that that self-love definitely, uh, I would hypothesize, leads to feelings of awe because of this ability to connect us to other people and that it, it gets us out of our own head. Um, I think my greater vision for my research is to think like, how can we employ self-love? It's free. It's accessible, which I like, right? Because a lot of these other therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, although I'm a believer, if you see there's an access issue. If you go to a private practitioner in New York City, it's $200. I think San Francisco, it's $150, So my greater vision really would be for people to be able to really continue to cultivate this self-love uh, within themselves. More specifically, what what would you say your research for your PhD mm. actually entails? Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that question. Because I think self-love, there's, I was just kind of thinking of self-love can feel, to me, I think of it as this like umbrella term, this idea that if self-love is an umbrella in the prongs, there are many different prongs. So to me, it's this idea of like self-compassion, which is like when we're judging ourselves, criticizing ourselves, we're able to accept ourselves, you know, amidst that. Self-care, which is like the respecting, doing things that are really acting, caring towards ourselves. This self-esteem idea, right, that we feel competent about ourselves. So so the reason that I say this kind of umbrella term is because there's little research out there right now that that actually includes self-love. Certainly how I know it to be true in these in therapeutic communities for example. Right. So I'm so fascinated by I'll say phenomena uh, of self-love in popular science in like the psychology today blogs on social media. Like if you go to Instagram and you type in hashtag #selflove, you get 32 million posts on Instagram. Google, if you Google self-love, you get 3 billion returns. So something is happening out there. (laughs) Right, yeah. And I want to know what is is it. So I think what the, to me, the intriguing piece is, so before I can go ahead and develop an intervention, right, even though I really want to jump to that phase. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We know that a PhD, you have to take little bits by bits, right, that it's actually talking about a career long uh, pursuit. So it my own research really is conceptualizing this idea of self-love in these lay theory views. So when I say lay theory, I don't mean like scholars who have already written about self-love. I mean people who are on Instagram and they're posting about self-love. So right now I'm in the process of thinking about uh, perhaps analyzing uh, Instagram posts to see how people, what is the image people are posting when they're doing hashtag self-love? And 
specifically within the context of like addiction and sobriety and recovery and 12 steps and serenity and things like that. So where do these two worlds of like self-love and addiction intersect and how are people um, in these lay communities, you know, these therapists, everyday people, how are they talking about self-love? I'm really curious to kind of dig through that because I see, I do see some posts that could be explained as narcissism, right? Right. Um, I see posts that are are very much moving away from this like self-care realm. So so self-care really is rooted in this like black feminist queer theory, Audre Lorde, this idea that like you're taking care of yourself so that you can show up as for the collective and this really activist mentality to now this transition of like hashtag self-care day, uh, Starbucks ad with your Frappuccino, whatever on the beach, hashtag right. self-care, right? This is like commoditiz- commoditization right. of self-care. And people, there's, you know, so there's, there's like hashtag self-care, hashtag self-love, but what are we really talking about here? And I'm so curious to kind of capture some of that to also include therapist voices, people in recovery to kind of see like what what is this idea of, of self-love to them? Okay. So you draw on psychology, sociology, lots of different research techniques. In yeah, behavioral health. Behavioral health. Yeah. So would you say that's generally true of people who are getting PhDs in the School of Social Welfare, that mm. there's this really interdisciplinary Yeah, what a lovely question. Yes, thank you for saying that. This is why I love social workers so much, by the way. <laughs> like, I really love the social work profession because I do feel like, you know, in this applied profession, we really are always working in these interdisciplinary environments, right? If you're like a clinician working in a hospital, you're working with doctors and nurses and psychiatrists, for example, right? right. And so I think the beauty of this PhD at Berkeley in the social welfare department has so much been about the freedom to connect with other uh, professors in other departments. So in public health, for example, um, I've connected with some professors there, some um, psychology, whether it's emotions research or like adolescent development, psychopathology, for example. So and I have, yeah, I have... um, you know, lovely women in my cohort who are bridging the gap with like anthropology, um, criminology, for example. So yeah, education. It's really, it's cool. And you knew that you wanted to be a social worker Mm. right out of college? (laughs) No, (laughs) I've taken a very interesting path. I think I always knew, like in high school, I always was intrigued by the psychology profession. And yeah, I was, I was thought, you know, I'm, I'm so drawn to, like, authenticity and people's lives. Like, what's really happening for right. people, you know? I always was drawn to that. But when I was in college, I went to the University of uh, Wisconsin, and they had a great business school. And so I got a business degree. And I actually, my family, I come from, you know, a long line of people who are in the business world. My dad have, had been in sales for so long. My brother's in sales now. My mom was, you know, this like badass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Badass in the corporate it's world. The <laughs> <laughs> so I, it was always kind of an influence for me. And um, I did, I was a consultant, an IT consultant for almost 10 years. But I, about halfway through, I realized like, yeah, I need to, 
I felt like there was some, my soul was dying. <laughs> and I really wanted to pursue something that I was so excited and curious about. So, yeah, about eight years ago, I got my master's in social work. Uh, I started my MSW program in New York City. Yeah. And it coincided, too, with some things that were happening in my family. And it just felt like the right time to, like, leave um, the corporate world and dive into the social work arena. And then you you got your master's and then you worked a little while as a social worker. Right. Yeah. So I, I did my MSW's two-year program. And then I was working in New York City for three years um, at an after-school, like a high school uh, support program. It was an after-school program. And it was, I mean, I learned so much. It was incredible. I have such love. It's, the program is called Project Reach Youth. And it's a um, working at a public high school in Brooklyn. And I think there may be, I don't know, our team was maybe 10 people or something. And I have such love to this day for these people that I worked with. I mean, the environment was so fun. Like we were, we were working with teenagers, um, teenagers who didn't have a lot of resources at their disposal. I mean, this is like a New York City public funded high school. It's what um, the schools we were working with were like C grades. So the way that New York City rates our schools like A, B, C. So mm-hmm. we were a C school. And I mean, these people that I worked with, they, the strategies they were using were so creative to get these young people what they needed while also providing such a safe space for these young people to learn about themselves. And so I was actually, I was doing therapy with kids who were high risk. So who were at risk for suicide, who were just really having a hard time academically or at home and whatnot. But it was such a fun environment. I mean, people were so authentic. And I mean, I don't know your experience with young people, but young people, they can sense when BS. And so you really have no other choice but to show up authentically. Right. And uh, such a gift, really, to work there. So that was a great experience. And what, um, I guess, drove you, most people in social work or if you're a professional, I guess you mostly just need the master's and then you could do the work. What drove you onward to the doctoral degree? Yeah, so... So I think there were two things. So one was I would run every Monday afternoon, I'd run a girls group. So like 16, 17-year-olds, they would come and we would talk about all the things, whatever they wanted to talk about. And I was finding a lot of the girls were expressing such anger and this anger of just like what was just happening in life. But then, you know, the microcosm of like the school environment um, and Facebook and people calling each other out and, you know, subliminal subs that were being thrown on Facebook, for example, that would then trans- transfer to the school day the next day and there would be fights and girls would get suspended. And so when I started talking to them about anger and what anger did for them and getting into fights, it really getting into a fight is a release, right? Like your adrenaline is so high and you punch someone out or you do something like you feel better. But it's instantaneous because then you have these long term consequences of getting suspended, your parents finding out whatnot, right? Right. So I'd say to them like, yeah, what are strategies? How I, I literally was like, what are some strategies that we can use in order to kind of sort through all the different feelings that anger brings. Because ultimately, anger is powerlessness. Like, we get angry when we feel powerless. And so I started investigating mindfulness. Mindfulness was really just becoming a thing. This was like 
2014. At least that was when I first started hearing about it. And so I would try to understand, like, what is this mindfulness? How do I use it? So mindfulness really is a definition. John Kabat-Zinn, simplest form that I like is this idea of non-judgmentally noticing. So like noticing that I got really pissed when someone posted something on Facebook about me that may not be true. And like then taking the breath and the pause before I respond, before I respond something nasty to someone on Facebook or want to punch them out the next day, for example, right? Right. When you're talking to adolescents, this, this pause is very difficult because you're also talking about like an age development where you have impulsivity, right? right? And like they're trying to figure out who they are. Right. Um, so I started diving into mindfulness. I thought like this could really work, but I was so like, mindfulness research was so new at the time. I think it really hit its peak around like 2016 in terms of like the amount of journals that were published like exponentially increased. So I knew that how mindfulness was being talked about in terms of the population I was working with. So people who were coming from um, primarily like black and brown communities, uh, lower socioeconomic, having toxic stress. Mindfulness felt very like a white, waspy, affluent, part one. Part two was I couldn't figure out what are these mindfulness techniques and how can we actually apply them to adolescents? So I started getting interested in that and started reading all that I could and figured I really wanted to work on interventions for adolescents that were geared around mindfulness to... Um, these specific populations I talked about where I felt like there was such a lack of evidence at that point for these groups. Um, So that was part one. Part two, around the same time, I read an op-ed piece in the New York Times written by Dacher Keltner here uh, in psychology. And it was, what is something like, what is the emotion of awe? And I thought to myself, like, what is awe and how do I get to know this person? Who is this person? Which then started for me like a flurry of Googling UC Berkeley. And I knew I wasn't going to be do a PhD in psych. Um, but I found a professor here, Valerie Shapiro, who's my advisor and has been so lovely navigating this PhD world with me. She's a prevention and implementation science researcher here in the School of Social Welfare. And she had a study examining social emotional learning programs here in elementary schools in California. So like teaching little kids about empathy, for example. And so I thought, oh, that's like emotion. And it has to do with like kids and in schools, like even though my interests aren't completely aligned, let me reach out to her and see if um, I could work with her. So that's wow. kind of how I came to study. Uh, my two main areas really have been mindfulness and then positive emotions uh, specifically now self-love, but in this greater context of, you know, these social problems like social isolation, depression, addiction, and yeah. So unfortunately, it's been a lot of fun, but we're coming up towards our time limit on the interview. Yeah. Uh, usually at the end of the interview, we'll take a minute, offer guests a chance to address the audience about anything that they'd like to talk about. Oftentimes people talk about like social issues or s- hmm. things specific to their research. I think, well, one thing I want to say for sure is that I think I just want to do a shout out of gratitude as I've been really developing this idea um, of self-love. I have been working with an undergrad in the social welfare department, Joyce, who's really has helped me 
kind of start thinking about all this like self-care and self-compassion and where all these terms kind of intersect and cataloging these different Instagram posts to figure out like, yeah, what what really is self-love and how people are talking about it. Um, so I want to do a shout out to her. And then I think, yeah, lastly, I guess I would say that I think for me, I think it's such an important point to uh, hit home is that for me, self-love really isn't a selfishness. But it really is, and it's not this like me focused thing, but it really is in this idea of continuing to like connect and show up as our authentic selves uh, with others. So right. I think it has some serious healing power okay. behind it. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. More will be revealed. We all look forward to the results of your research. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, today, I've been speaking with Kelly Zemer from the School of Social Welfare. We've been speaking about her research on positive emotions and the potential therapeutic uh, benefits of self-love. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kelly. Oh, thank you for having me. This was lovely. <laughs> Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Grudge.